Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Hello, Hackaroos. Hope everybody is doing well. Welcome to our latest edition. We are just at the cusp of the end of January. We're a week away from the famed and fabled State of the Union Address, if anybody remembers exactly what that is. I remember watching that on TV and wondering how many people were watching, and I'm not even sure anybody really cares or does that anymore. But to set up that and to talk about the events that are going on in our political world, we have assembled, of course, the one and only Mike Murphy. Mike, tell us who we have assembled today to give us a lay of the land. All righty, Dr. Gibbs. Good to hear your dulcet tones here on Hacks on Tap. And I don't know about you, but I, for one, I am waiting for some of that stirring Biden rhetoric and oratory, because we all know that's what Joe's known for. But yeah, the big State of the Union is coming, sets the agenda, important politically, and to decode all that, to also help us uh, take a look back at lessons learned in the midterms, talk politics in general, we have the one and only, the grandmaster, the democratic strategist and pollster, sofas and chairs, ladies and gentlemen. He does it all. Our friend, the great Mark Melman. Hey, Mark, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Pleasure to be back. All right. You're going to untangle all this stuff for me. So let me let me posit an idea here, and you can gun it down with surgical precision. Happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I... Melman and I started together, I mean, on different sides, of course, I'm right, and he's always been wrong on most things, way back in 82, because he broke out of Yale, and I dropped out of Georgetown, and we were both in a story about the ridiculously new and incompetent consultants, and we've, we've been friends ever since. Um, we've worked together on some stuff, but but anyway, so... We used to do I, a show on Fox in, uh, in Washington. That's right, Murphy and Melman on the local Channel 5 Fox thing. We... we <laughs> I'll tell you, there was a cult. I won't even get into the lines of autograph seekers and all that. But Mark and I have been friends a long time. But to get back to business here, rather than two old geezers of memory lane, the, here's my crazy idea. In the old days, hence referenced, we, we all used to really watch the presidential job approval. You know, it would move up and down with big macro forces like the economy. And I, I always had a theory once cable showed up. It was also kind of a noise meter on what the media cycle was like 10 days ago, you know, what was kind of bubbling through. Boy, now in our new I'm right, you're evil, you're evil, I'm right politics, it seems like it's locked in. I'm looking at these Biden numbers and they barely move. We've had the, the Biden documents, you know, all the stuff that the Beltway obsesses on and they just keep slugging around. Biden, it, it, unfavorable averaging, I think, in the low, low 50s and the favorable creeping up to the mid to high 40s. What's going on with the presidential job approval? Does it mean anything? Or are we just all so ossified now it can't move anymore? Right. There's no question we have a suffer from political sclerosis in this country. Yeah. Uh, pretty hardened. Everybody is on a team and they stay on that team. It takes an awful lot to move even a few people. Um, I actually wrote about this a column in the Hill last week, uh, there really is no evidence that the uh, Biden documents, for example, have had any meaningful impact on uh, on Biden's approval numbers. If you look at the numbers today, maybe they're down a point, um, maybe uh, a point, but that's it. Uh, so these numbers don't move very much. But even looking back in the days when they did move, State of the Union speeches almost never move numbers. 
Uh, they did for Bill Clinton for various reasons. He was a tremendous orator. He gave very long speeches. Uh, people, uh, people liked him. Uh, but the reality is most presidents, most of the time, got no movement out of States of the Union speeches. Uh, we've come to, uh, people tend to ignore that fact and they look and they say, ah, yeah. how much is Biden going to move after he give this, gives the State of the Union? If he follows the historical pattern, he won't move anybody. That'll get you thrown out of any Washington cocktail party because, you know, there's so much breathless beltway yeah. coverage of this is his only chance to move the numbers and everything. But I, I think the data agrees with you. Gibbs, what do you think? You've been there. You've, you've inflicted a few State of the Unions on a, on a poor, unsuspecting country in the Obama years. What's been your experience? No, I totally agree with Mark. I mean, I think there's this obsession of, you know, is there a bump? Is there all this kind of stuff? I, I, I think t to me, to me, the much more important near-term and medium-term impact that the State of the Union has is it is your best chance and place to lay out the case you're going to spend the next year driving, right? I think for 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 Joe Biden, it it is to lay out a series of things that you're going to do, a series of things that you have done, uh, an agenda that looks forward. Because it begins to set up kind of the macro themes of the year. But I, I totally agree. I mean, if you think through um, the history, and Mark's right, you know, the Clinton numbers were, Clinton moved numbers largely because, to his point, he was great at giving a speech. But also, you had a lot of people that watched. Now, you, you just don't have as many people watch the State of the Union. They're going to see a clip of the State of the Union. You're going to watch part of it on their social network. But, you know, really gone are the days where, where, you know, 50 million people or 40 million people probably are going to sit around and watch the entire speech, let alone the sort of Republican reaction. To me, it sort of sets the stage again for, I think, what's going to be just a consequential battle this year, obviously, between Joe Biden and House Republicans. I agree with that 100%. I'd add the following. It also gives the talking points to Democratic officials up and yeah. down the ticket, members of Congress, the House, the Senate, mayors, county executives, whatever they are. They're going to echo those themes. They're going to echo those words uh, that are that are articulated in the State of the Union. It gives them marching orders. The party has a clear message. It's whatever the president message the president communicated to the State of the Union. That becomes the party's message for a, a long time to come. Same with the media narrative, too. You're kind of chewing the food for the D.C. kindergarten a little bit, which is next Thursday, I will have pancakes. And then they get, you know, a couple of days of, he's going to have pancakes. What kind of pancake? Oh, he's having pancakes like he said he would. You just bring clarity to the agenda. But let me ask you a question from the Biden point of view on these numbers. At least maybe 49 favorables, the new 55 of the old days, but he's still net negative five or six points. And he does have a reelect winding around far away. But if the State of the Union can't start moving voter numbers for him to, to, to try to get not being a net negative, in other words, more people unfavorable job approval than favorable, what does? What does a president do to use the office to heal thyself, doctor? Well, first of all, time makes a difference here. Uh, the reality is Joe Biden is in better shape today on job approval than Ronald Reagan was at this point in his presidency. And he went on to win 49 states. I should say spin doctor. That, that's excellent. But that's a very good point. Mark just predicted Joe Biden wins 49 states. Yeah, There's the, yeah there you go. That's our not story. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> what, the real lesson is not that Joe Biden's going to win 49 states, but the real lesson is 
that what the numbers are today tell us very, very little about what's yeah. going to happen in the next presidential election. Um, yeah. That's really what that, that is telling us. And why is that? First of all, because there is a lot of time and a lot of things can happen. We can have a recession. We can come out of the recession. We cannot have a recession. We can have tremendous economic growth. We cannot have a tremendous economic growth. We can have foreign policy crises. They can be resolved. They cannot be resolved. All kinds of things can happen that can, that can move that needle uh, more than a little bit. Second, you have time to communicate a message uh, that's electorally focused. Uh, you know, the truth is the Biden administration spent the first two years getting stuff done. And now they have two years to talk about all the stuff they got done and make it real for people in a way that it hasn't been up to. Third, when you get to November of 2024, even before that, there's a real opponent. And it's not just the referendum yeah. on Joe Biden. It's not just do you approve or disapprove of Joe Biden. It's do you prefer Joe Biden or do you prefer this Republican? And there are lots of Republicans, lots of Republicans who are, can win this nomination, who are going to pale in comparison to Joe Biden on a whole bunch of measures. So, Mark, two things on that, because I, I want to pick up on that last point. But before I want to build off Murphy's question, right? So Trump sort of Trump, Trump on Election Day in 2020, his approval was right at 44 and a half, almost 45 Barack Obama in 2012 was r little north, just a slightly bit north of 49. D do you envision you've got Joe Biden now 44 in the CBS poll, 45 in the NBC poll? To, to, to Murphy's question, is, is, it, is, it, is it too looking backwards in our political history to think that, I mean, obviously you're going to want to be closer to 49 than 44 and a half, but can you envision to your last point, a world in which you don't really have to see a market improvement in that. Because I think in years past, a media strategist, a political strategist, a communication strategist, you'd say, okay, we've got to get, we've got to get from 44 to 445. We've got to get to 49. We've got to get to 47 and a half. Do you think that's just an antiquated way of looking at it now? I think it is because it really also depends on where the other guy is, where the other person is, where the opponent is. And I think, you know, you can win a race and have very low numbers can win a race by having an opponent who's got lower numbers than you do. Right. Um, so yes, it matters where you are, but it matters where you are relative to an opponent. Also, as we talked about before, we have this sclerotic ossified politics where very few people are up for grabs. So a lot of it is about turnout and a lot yeah. of it is about which side decides that this election is really important enough for them to participate in. You know, it's funny. We used to have a politics where well, it's a negative referendum on one of these guys, so the other one can win by drafting along. Now it's a negative referendum on both. You know, it's a hate fest. Being hated less is the key to victory. You know, we've taken the number of swing states and s slowly made them smaller and smaller. To to Mark's point, you're not only gonna you're not only gonna try to drive the negatives up of somebody else, but by the time we get to November of 2024, that'll be to the tune of probably a quarter of a billion dollars in six you know, spread out um, in each of six states, just trying to move a very small number of people. So I guess to your point, Mark, you know, what, what, the, what, the, what the country uh, sees in an approval rating is very different than maybe what four to six states see in an approval rating. And, and what four to six percent of people in those four to six uh, states uh, see. Uh, we're talking about very small numbers that make the difference here. You know, I smell an opportunity to rehash the old scam, Mark, that you and I did way back when. 
uh, we got a little tired of lazy reporters trying to find one thing the election was about. Soccer moms, left-handed guys named Lewis, you know, whatever it is. So we we had a beer one night and decided we'd start one, and we invented Uptinos, upwardly mobile Latinos, and we had a race to see who could get that in the print first. So I think we ought to do it this year with super swings. We found the 17,816 super swing voters who are going to, you know, the last of the swing voters, the lost tribe. And my guess is we can get that in 100 news stories. Exactly. Put them in four states, about 4,000 each, and we struck gold. <laughs> Dr. Frank Luntz will do a TV focus group of them, yeah, exactly. too, on the Weather Channel. Yeah, exactly. it'll, it'll spin into complete out-of-controlness. No, we won't do that, dear listeners. We're responsible political hacks and pundits here. Mark, don't you think, too, though, uh, to that point about setting this up, and, and look, I'm always reminded of, of Biden saying, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, which is a maxim that he said a lot that he got from his father. He told that to President Obama a lot. This is a speech is is a chance to begin to outline not just his vision, but to walk through exactly what Republicans are opposed to and and to highlight what they're for uh, in a way that begins to further color them way outside of the mainstream line, something that they obviously had a big, big problem with uh, in, in 2020. I mean, I'm struck by, if you look at the polling, a lot of people think Republicans in Congress are going to be too inflexible. Um, a, a huge number believe that uh, they're going to spend too much time investigating Joe Biden and not enough time working on the, the issues that they care about. Uh, what do you think Biden has to do or what do you think he, his job is to lay out next week to start to begin to just make those choices even sharper? President Biden has to ha- start to define, Robert, as you were saying, define the Republican Party this time. And as you suggested, he's got a lot to work with. First of all, people think the Republicans have the wrong priorities. Um, and almost everybody thinks that. Three quarters of the country thinks that they have the wrong priorities, that the Republicans in Congress have the wrong priorities. That's something he's going to have to reinforce. He should reinforce in his message. Second, <clears throat> that they are extreme uh, and out of the mainstream. And th- that's going to be true in a lot of ways. Everything from wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare uh, to wanting to ban all abortions, even in cases of rape and incest. These are important issues for the American public. Uh, The latter issue made all the more important by the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. Um, But important issues where Republicans, again, are far, far out of the mainstream. Um, So he's going to need to paint them as as far out of that mainstream. Those, to me, are the, the sort of core issues here. Wrong priorities, positions that are that are too extreme, far out of the mainstream. Those are the two pillars I think he's going to work with. Um, but again, this is just the beginning of that process. And the Republicans are going to help us find a way through because what they do with their governance, such as it is, uh, is, uh, is going to be important. I'll tell you, there's one other thing, which is incompetence. The fact that it took 15 ballots for Republicans to get a speaker uh, tells you something about their ability to run the government. Um, and if they show similar kinds of uh, ineptitude going forward, that ineptitude is going to color people's perceptions of the presidential candidate uh, as well. Well, Biden gets the crazy Republican definition work for free because they do it to themselves around the clock, which many of us in the the hanging on by a thread Republican world find absolutely exasperating. But let, let me give the other side of the coin. How does Biden 
And, you know, I, I don't buy the, I think Biden's going to run most likely. I think he sure wants to run. I'm not certain he will. How does he handle the, what I call the ankler problem, which is even on a good day, he shows up with these massive anklers growing out of his head, which is the age issue. He's not going to get unold. And I think the age thing is going to be big and it's going to draw a lot of attention to him. And it's going to even unfairly raise performance expectations. I mean, you know, every president goes into Walter Reed for a weekend, you know, to get a small thing done. When it happens with Biden, the media will treat it like the Super Bowl. Will he pull through? So how do they handle age? Do they confront it? Do they not? Because it's there. Those antlers are in every, every picture from now on. I'll give you five more seconds to think about it, Mark, and just say, to your point, Murphy, 28% uh, of those in the NBC poll thought that Biden had the necessary mental and physical health to be president. So this, you know, this, before you send nasty, well, you can send nasty emails to Murphy, um, but understand <laughs> that, 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 that what he's talking about is, is an issue that the White House is almost certainly going to have to address head on. You know, just a quick historical interjection, give Mark even more time to figure out the brilliant answer here. <laughs> or forget uh, the question. <laughs> I'll never forget, I was on the road with quail, and we, we were in a southern state, and a southern Republican political boss, no, noted for that person's bluntness, came up, Mr. Vice President, people think you're stupid. They think you're dumb as a box of, you know, hammers. So you need to learn Russian. And then when they say you're stupid, you just talk to them in Russian. Everybody will think you're smart. Somebody write this down. And so poor Biden, because, you know, what are, I, my prediction is they're going to put him in a karate outfit, you know, and have him working out in the mornings or something, some stupid. He's not old. But what do they do, Melman? You're now in charge of the reelect. You're the guy. How do you at least fend that off? Obviously, I guess you try to change the topic a lot. Look, uh, Ronald Reagan faced that issue. He was a bit younger, but he faced that issue. He made a joke about it, and it went away uh, for all intents and purposes. You have other options as well. You reveal what kind of shape you're in. And if he has a vigorous campaign where he's out there going from place to place, uh, doing lots of things, lots of stuff, uh, that's going to fade. Uh, th that kind of concern will fade. Uh, if he looks like he's not really up to it physically, obviously those kinds of concerns are going to going to increase. Um, but also, again, you got to look at it compared to the opponent. We don't know who his opponent's going to be. If it's Donald Trump, Donald Trump is about the same age um, uh, as Joe Biden. So people can lament that we have two octogenarians uh, uh, running, but that's what we're going to have. And so that becomes not part of the choice anymore. Uh, it's either way you go, you end up with somebody who's, uh, uh, on the older side. So, you know, it really depends on how the whole campaign unfolds. You know, I think uh, Gibbsy, we might have to have the official hacks on tap Biden killer old joke contest here. we we'll get some of our comic friends to, uh, I'll nominate the first one, which is, Hey man, uh, I'm hip. I'm young. I discovered the Beatles, not the band, the insect, but a boom. There you go. We're reaching to the old vaudeville hack joke file for that one. Uh, but we, we're, we're, we're talking about it, but we might be back. Clever, you can always email us at the mailbag, your, your Biden old diffusing joke. Uh, remember the Reagan one at the debate was, I'm not going to make my opponent's youth, uh, 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 I'm not going to attack my opponent for his youth and inexperience, right? That was it. Right. And uh, it worked. Mark's right. Yes. Well, it, better than apparently the Dan Quayle, just add an E to every word you're spelling in a classroom. Uh, that, that, that tended not to work as well. As well, let me <laughs> say, this is a bitter point. 
The teacher oh, wrote it and handed him the card. He didn't want to embarrass her, and that is one of the ways you can spell potato. But, you know, liberal media, you know what happens. Only yeah. elites spell potato that way. Yeah, I was going to say. I don't want Norm from the Walmart running the country. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, too, it, it, Bill, when you brought this up. I mean, obviously, I think for Biden, it is, execution of office is, is going to mean a lot more th- than it it, it always does in every presidential. I think it'll be different than the 2020 elections. His name is firmly on the ballot. But I think, to Mark's point, a, a, a bit of vigor in both what he does and how he travels. I think you've seen him traveling a lot more sort of post-election than you did uh, uh, pre-election. And I don't mean just for campaigning. I mean, just out and about in the States. Uh, and look, I think there's a lot of issues and a lot of crises that uh, you're going to have to confront over the course of the next of almost two years. The challenge, Murphy, to put this back on you is is I, I don't understand the, the cards or the hand that the Republicans seem to be playing because Mark brought this up, the extreme issues in the NBC poll. The least popular policy that they rolled that they tested was restricting abortion. Right. And that seems to be right now currently in the wheelhouse of what every Republican wants to do. The second least popular was something Kevin McCarthy just put on the table, which is cutting defense spending. Uh, as part of uh, as part of raising the debt ceiling. So it certainly seems to me like um, not only are they having trouble picking a speaker, but the, the speaker seems to be picking uh, and playing his lowest cards, uh, as do Republicans writ large as they head into uh, 2023. Now, now, Robert, do you actually think they have a political strategy over at the House? It's, it's Lord of the Flies. You know, I mean, they're I don't think there is. There's an internal strategy to win the never-ending Republican primary that they seem to think general elections are. If you want to break through the ADIQ barrier among Republicans, go over to the Senate side and you see what they're trying to do. But but it's really, really hard. The party's been consumed, not unlike the Democrats, by the way, in the wacky 70s, uh, early 70s. Uh, been consumed by internal factional politics among ideologues. And boy, wait till... You know, one thing I think that people are missing a little bit is part of McCarthy's institutional surrender to win the speakership was he really screwed my old buddy Tom Cole, chairman of the Rules Committee, which is the traffic cop of what goes to the floor for a vote, because he's put a couple of Freedom Caucus people in there. So if they all say, we demand a floor vote on the Gibbs measure to outlaw the, the algebra as a communist plot uh, controlled by space lasers. And a couple of Democrats say, hey, let's be crazy for a day, pass the rule, let them have a floor vote on crazy time. You know, every regular Republican member is terrified of this. They're going to have a voterama of nutty political votes that they don't want to be anywhere near. So, yeah, yeah, the, the, politically, the House guys are going to be the gift that keeps giving. Well, they're marching headlong into that debate coming tomorrow when when they McCarthy goes to sit down with, with President Biden about the debt ceiling and says, Hey, we want to negotiate. And, and if you're Joe Biden, it doesn't take a lot to say, great, let me see your list of what you'd like to negotiate about. What? Tell me what you want to cut. And, you know, I think they're going to be right in the middle of the soup in a, a scenario in which I think there's very, very little chance of positive outcome for them. I think they yeah. are ramping up expectations way beyond what they can possibly produce. Uh, And what they're going to end up with is basically surrendering in the end, probably after inflicting 
a significant amount of political damage on themselves. And they're going to probably wind up midsummer with a very depressed base that's wondering, what was that all about? Why wasn't there a plan? little, little too good to be true? Uh, one, I don't know if Biden will go for the political win because, on principle, the Democrats never want to debate the debt ceiling because they, they don't want to make it a legitimate tool of budget debate. But maybe he will. And you're right, they're going to give him opportunities. So, the thing out in voter land that gets missed is. Republicans base and beyond habitual Republican voters, the people who are perfectly capable of theoretically building a coalition and, and beating Biden with the right candidate who's not Trump, are obsessed with spending. And they ought to be. We do have a spending crisis in the country. Now, I don't think the debt ceiling is a way to negotiate it. It's like arguing over a restaurant bill with a, you know, by setting off a hand grenade on the table. But the, the spending issue is coming back. Now, Republicans are guilty hypocrites on it. I'll be the first to admit that. But it's out there. And on a sober policy basis, what we're getting up to 135% of GDP to debt. It's crazy. And Biden's been awful. The problem that's always been there with the spending issue is this. People want to cut government spending in general, but yeah, there's but no category of specific spending that they want to see cut at all. They want most of the categories increased. Polsters. We got to cut back. <laughs> Exactly. And so the, I think President Biden is not in the, he's going to say no negotiations on the debt ceiling, but you want to talk spending reductions? Give me your reductions. I right. think Robert's absolutely right. He's going to demand every day that those Republicans come up with a list and they're going to come up with a list, uh, just like uh, the senator from Florida did, who probably is a little lower than the average Senate IQ uh, for Republicans. But look, Mike, you said, they're, you know, look to the Senate Republicans. But the reality is Mitch McConnell is the most unpopular figure in this country by far. In fact, I haven't had a chance I to- I I loved him. Yet, but <laughs> Mitch McConnell may be the most unpopular politician in history. There may be no politician. Right. No, I hear you. now. But he's not on the ballot, though. I know. Look, it, it, Dems always want one race. They want to talk abortion and spending cuts, equal cuts to Medicare and Social Security. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that- Or health care. Right. right. Okay. Or, or healthcare or anything that polls popularly. Yeah. To Mark's point about McConnell is in the point that I, I think is important for this year is we know it's going to take a while to get a Democratic or I'm sorry, a Republican nominee for president. Right. And and the 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 group playing Republican nominee for president for 2023 are House Republicans. That's what that's what Joe Biden wants to get into a fight uh, about and and who he wants to get into a fight with. Uh, And I don't think you're going to have, quite frankly, a a group of presidential nominees looking to be the Republican nominee who are going to push off on the House of Representatives all that hard. We will find out. I fundamentally agree that the reason we have a spending crisis is the country is drunk on entitlements and the polls won't do anything about it. That equation works politically, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. But right. there's, I, I don't know, I um, the Dems are good at being demagogues about it. The Republican Party, they're also pretty good demagogues, are good at saying they're for spending cuts and not doing it, which is often, or doing a little, which can be enough to win the election. We'll see. I take your point, though, Mark, that if it becomes the fight the Dems want, they're going to win that, which is they're going to cut everything you love. On the McConnell piece, I just say this. The reality is there's going to be a bunch of Republican candidates presumably running around trying to get attention. But there's you got a Republican Speaker of the House who's part of the process, who's fundamentally incompetent and basically kneecapped himself. And you have a Republican leader in the Senate 
who's a much smarter, much more capable guy, disliked by almost every American. So who is going to be the spokesperson for the Republican Party? There's no that, that passes any kind of smell test with the American public. That's a that's a problem. Yeah, our guys used to always pitch that about Pelosi, which is why we'd run endless ads trying to make the midterms about her. And it was always, and her numbers were crap, but it yes. was always with limited success. Though McCarthy may be a supernova who's able to, you know, set a new record for low numbers. And M- McConnell, I think it's kind of cooked in that he's a stage villain. Uh, we're see. We're see. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. And now a word from our sponsors. Your pet's a member of the family. Don't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know what? Let's get off the flat jokes and get into why Nom Nom is spectacular, fresh dog food. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion, get this, personalized to your dog's needs so you can bring out their best. It's made with real whole food you can see and recognize. It's not that mystery soiling green stuff you see sometimes in dog food, which uh, I know our pups are not too interested in. So it doesn't have any additives, gives, or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. So you don't want that. No, Nom Nom's made with real whole food you can see and recognize. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped, Murphy, free, I know you like that, to your door. Nom Nom's Mm. already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and the appropriate tail wags. I know how much everybody that listens to this loves their dog. They love them so much and feel better giving them better nutrition. And my dog loves the food and the new energy they get from eating Nom Nom. Our dog, Dolly, and our new puppy, who's still matriculating, Daisy, both went to law school. So they're happy that Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom or refund your first order. So what do you have to lose? Make your dog happy. You're protected. Get them that fresh food, not the mystery stuff from a scary factory somewhere that's not full of the kind of veterinary certified nutritionist at Nom Nom. No fillers, no nonsense. Just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash hacks. Spelled trynom.com slash hacks for 50% off. Trynom.com slash hacks. Because remember, when your dog says bark, bark, she's trying to say nom, nom. (laughs) No fillers, no nonsense, just nom, nom. There is a reason that the Republican identity now, which is mostly Trump-driven, maybe a little bit of Mitch on the side, failed miserably in an election by all accounts we should have won last time. So let me pivot over to that. What surprised you, Mark Melman, uh, about the midterms? Because if you look at wrong track, if you look at inflation, if you look at all the old metrics that used to be fairly predictive, you knew the Repubs would overperform because of these bad messengers and everything. It was still, at least to me, a surprising outcome. It was surprising. Given, given all the givens. But the reality is a couple fold. First of all, the big factor here is what we've been talking about earlier, our sclerotic politics, our ossified politics. It's hard to get people to move. 
the system just yeah. isn't responsive anymore to circumstances, to candidates. Uh, there's in, in, people vote the way they've always voted, irrespective of uh, new circumstances. And so it's hard to generate change. It's hard to generate big movement either way. That's the biggest factor here. But you had, I think, three other factors. You can't underestimate the impact of the Dobbs decision. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we saw it in all kinds of places. Uh, we did the uh, campaign in Michigan for the uh, abortion rights initiative. Uh, it drove persuasion. It drove turnout. Um, that issue was present everywhere across the country. Um, second, uh, you had uh, the fact that uh, what McConnell rightly called the candidate quality problem. You had some pretty lousy candidates. I mean, New Hampshire, you had a guy running around spending the last weeks of the campaign talking about kids in school going to the bathroom in kitty litter, um, which the governor, Republican governor of the state said was crazy. And, you know, anyway, very poor candidates. And the truth is uh, they did pretty well, especially given how poor they were as candidates. But those poor candidates uh, made a real difference there. And finally, this wasn't really just a referendum on the party in power. That's usually the case because the president is that big symbol, uh, the only sort of unified symbol for either party. Uh, but Donald Trump is a symbol of Republicans and he inserted himself at the end of his campaign in a very significant way. Uh, every day, the ma major st storyline in the press was, is Trump going to announce today or tomorrow? Is it going to be before the election day? Is it going to yeah. be after election day? He inserted himself. So it was back to that choice between Democrats and Trump, as opposed to just a referendum on the Biden administration. You put all that together and you get just a little bit of movement that's necessary if it's possible uh, to protect Democrats. Um, and again, we lost. We would have liked to have done even better, but came very close because of those factors. Projecting forward, what's your biggest fear as a Democrat about the presidential reelect for Biden, assuming it's Biden? My biggest fear is, is real world events. Some people think we're going to have a recession. I'm, I'm no economist. I'm no prophet. Uh, I can't tell you whether we are or not. But if we have a serious recession uh, that's still going on as we get to the election year uh, and into election towards election day, that's a serious, serious problem uh, in in this context. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with uh, the war in Ukraine, with the Russians. I mean, there's just so many uh, variables at play in the world. Uh, that's what I'm worried about. Uh, is what kind of crises we're going to face, economic, military, others. Uh, so that's the, the big worry. You know, the second worry you alluded to before, and I'll be honest about it, I don't think it's going to happen. I certainly hope it doesn't happen. But, you know, if, if uh, uh, Joe Biden trips and falls uh, on a stage somewhere, uh, there's going to be a raft of commentary about whether or not he's capable of doing the job. Um, uh I think there's no question he is, but the question's going to be asked. Yeah, yeah. The RNC just quietly bought 120,000 bananas, by the way. So have your advanced people ready. Roger Ailes used to always say, "I don't care if you uh, cure cancer; the media will always cover the candidate falling into the orchestra pit bigger than anything else." Gibbs, you have anything on this? Because I want to get to the axe fight in the Windy City too. No, the only thing I want to do is before we 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 get into uh, the excitement in Chicago, let's uh, you know. Speaking of inserting himself, Donald Trump was 
out on the trail this week, Murphy. Uh, this <laughs> yes. past weekend in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Lame, too. Hardly could pull flies. Doing a little OTR, visiting a Zestos in uh, in South Carolina. It's uh, I did not have uh, did not have a Zestos OTR on my bingo card this weekend, so uh, I'm I'm a loser in that. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play this out uh, uh, again for you, Murphy. He looks obviously less strong, weaker than he's ever looked before. It seems like the legal system is is stacking against him, whether it's the new grand jury in New York, whether it's the old special grand jury in uh, in Georgia. Just a lot of stuff seems to be mounting, but I'm still not exactly sure how the Republicans are are beating this guy. I, I walk me through a little of this. I, I know there's a there. It seems like everybody has taken all their money in the Repu- in Republican land, bet it all on one person and have lit candles and are praying that that's going to work. Because I got to tell you, Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and Tim Scott and Mike Pence are not going to be uh, the Republican Party's nominee. Well, I am going to change my affectionate uh, nickname of you from Dr. Von Gibbs to Gibbsasaki, named after that lone Japanese soldier in 1958 who finally came down from the mountains to see if they'd won. Because you and I have been debating this for two years. I say Trump is fading out. You say Trump is more likely than not to be the next nominee of the GOP, I think, which is great news for, for the R's. So I think right now everybody gets to be wrong in the preseason. As president, you know, you can go down the list uh, of the early primary frontrunners. I think the fundamentals of Trump have a half-life and they're in decline. You're now seeing RNC members, dozens and dozens of them, you know, party members of at the top who really are kind of grassrootsy, some extent finance uh, area GOP, publicly telling the New York Times it's time to move on. You see people who were formed last time. So the fear grip is declining. Trump is declining. It was it was like the sad last tour of um, Strawberry Alarm Clock going on tour. You know, VW minibus, no crowds. It going on tour in 2011. You know, Nobody listening was, to this knows what you're talking about. No well, that, that's an inside call to my friend Greg Mumford. Let, let me, you won't believe Melman this Dunn. one. Sorry, Melman. Dunn. Yeah, Melman. Melman's right. a big strawberry Greg. guy. We're, Greg <laughs> Mumford was the lead singer of the Strawberry Alarm Clock, and he is a Republican direct mail copywriter now. So hopefully no. he's sitting by his radio no, laughing at this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, those dear turnips and blood letters you get from the RNC. Uh, Mumford's a genius at that stuff. But when he was a kid, he had a garage band, and they, they, he got a call to go to the studio, and they'd never met each other before, and he sang the track. And a month and a half later, he turns on the radio in L.A., and he hears himself. And that's the story of the Strawberry Alarm Clock. That is popular culture I am completely unfamiliar with. <laughs> anyway, story. so incense and peppermint. Uh, listen to it now, and Greg will get a hundredth of a penny. So, or probably nothing, knowing that manager. But anyway, moving on. So, I think Trump's fading. We don't have to have somebody yet. I know DeSantis is the shiny object. I have my own doubts about if he can, you know, go through the car wash five thousand times. It, you know, the, the it, more and more looks. But there's room for somebody else. And the nightmare scenario for Democrats, even with all the House crazy and everything, is that a generationally younger somewhat less bananas Republican gets the nomination. So I don't, you know, if Tim Scott is the nominee, um, I, I, I don't buy the comfort bubble of, oh, it'll be Trump again. We're going to walk to election, even with a guy who's older than dirt. 
So we got to wait and see. All we know is true is that Trump is showing weakness now, and that might be material to the outcome. I stopped making predictions about Republican primary outcomes <laughs> in 2015 when I saw Trump was going to win after making jokes about him for a year and a half. So, look, I'm not sure who's going to the Republican nominee is going to be, but I'm sure that Trump has a chance. Yeah, fair enough. Because, you know, you have a winner take all system. Our friend Whit Ayers just came out with a poll saying, yeah, Trump's in big trouble. He's fallen. He's fallen. He's only got a grip on 30 percent of the Republican uh, uh, primary vote. that's not going to disappear. Well, 30 percent is enough to win the nomination in state after state after state if you have a lot of competition. Right. So there's no question. I'm not saying he's going to win, but there's no question he can win that nomination. And it's going to be a shit show over the next year and a half till we get there. Yeah. And that winner take all thing is interesting and important because the Democrats have a proportional Huge. system because, you know, old Yeller died. They cried. They decided the fourth place guy had to get delegates. We have the brutal Darwinian system of if you come in second, it doesn't matter. You're a loser. Hit the road. So if you have that plurality early, you can run up delegate numbers. Now, some of us tried to get our thing switched to a proportional system because it would be good for everybody. But you Trump felt bad for old Yeller, too. I, I did. I have to admit, I felt very bad for old Yeller. There was no interest at it. The DeSantis people weren't into it, which convinced me. I, I don't know if they thought this thing all the way through. So that is an advantage to Trump, that plurality, but I think it's a half-life situation. It'll continue to shrink. That's the open question. And I think Democrats are going to be the better for watching this all play out, not just the Trump versus somebody, because I, I'm, I'm very much in, in Mark's camp that, that I think all too, all too many people are discounting that Trump can still win this. I don't know that he will. Um, but I think there's a lot more people that seem to discount his ability to win it than it, it should, uh, at this point. But second, you know, watching some of, you know, Trump also tried to, accompanying this, tried to play catch up a little bit with DeSantis and others on, on, on different, um, on different policy agenda stuff. And he rolled out a bunch of stuff to, to Mark's earlier point, just some kind of way out there stuff on education. Uh, I did not know that the president could mandate that a local school system hold an election uh, for its principles. Um, but that's exactly what he rolled out. Now I'm, I'm, I'm scouring many minions scouring the constitution to figure out whether that's, um, uh, that's even remotely permissible. But I, I think the Democrats are going to, going to get a boost out of watching this group run really, really, really far right and try to outright themselves, uh, on issues like abortion, like, uh, uh, some of the downsides of, of education in a way that I think is going to position them in a much stronger way in a year and a half. No, I, I agree with all that. But if I, every Democrat campaign meeting right now, in my view, guessing, but based on pattern recognition, is making the same mistake, which is they go in and they have a delicious discussion all morning long. Of You'd see what Trump did today. What an idiot. He'll never be able to even carry Texas with that. And they go on and on about how they've won the Trump lottery because nobody wants to have the second part of the meeting, the hard stuff, what do we do about Joe Biden, who's a lousy communicator and is 180? So if I were them, I would outlaw Trump talk in the meetings and focus on the hard stuff. Because if they can fix Biden, they win. Uh, if they can't, Trump is out of their control. So yeah, enjoy it. But it's a you know control what you've got to control to be stronger. And that Biden's got problems. The rest of the Republicans do too. We were just talking about the fact that the whole Republican Party 
is way off to the right, way out of the mainstream. Look at Ron DeSantis. This guy is for the biggest, most powerful federal government that's ever existed. No Democrat would say that, uh, well, no Democrat would say that the federal government ought to be deciding whether women can have abortions and under what circumstances. No Democrat would say that the federal government ought to decide what curriculum local public schools are teaching and what curricula they're not teaching. No Democrat would ever say that the federal government ought to tell businesses what they can and can't do, uh, what kind of policies they can adopt inside their private businesses. I mean, this guy is for a powerful federal government that uh, is so powerful, Americans will go crazy about it. Uh, when this comes out, uh, becomes well known. Again, I think he's going to have problems in the Republican Party, DeSantis, but he's going to have huge problems in uh, with the wider audience. And look, I'm told by, I don't know the guy, but I'm told by people in Florida that he's not a nice person. And everybody who's ever met him knows he's not a nice person. And it's clear <laughs> that he's not a nice person. Okay. <laughs> now, one, you get you get the Hacks Award for the very clever and, I think, uh, crafty strategy of coming at DeSantis from the right. And believe me, you guys are going to have plenty of time to do all that. My old pal Melman, listen to you hit him for being, too. It's like Karl Marx editing Forbes and coming out for the flat tax. I, you get the gymnastic award for that one. Well played. We'll see. We're, all that stuff will happen. It's going into a tracking poll near you, Murphy. Just you wait. Oh, I, I'll bet. And it should. It's a good argument. He's trying out lines on us, and I get it. I hope the writers are uh, downloading the issue. Let's get to Chicago, because I'll be voting there 28 times, probably. So let me set up the race a little bit. You got a mayor's race, important race. Lori Lightfoot is the incumbent. Not in a strong position, but the incumbent. Uh, weird to see an incumbent mayor of Chicago with no friends willing to really go to bat, political friends. She's kind of a tough customer, but she's got a base. African-American candidate has her supporters. And then you got 118 other candidates, one of which is your client, Mark, Paul Vallis, who's kind of running as the sharp pencil, Mr. Fix-It, competent and supported by the cop unions and all that, where crime's a big issue. Um, and then you got Chewy Garcia, congressman's got a base. I think a fair to say pretty progressive candidate might unify some of that. What, what, give us your honest take on the race and then give us your pitch for, for Paul and what you think is going to happen because his first step's a runoff. Right. There's a runoff. The, the truth is there are several polls that show Ballas moving in the first place, which is great. He's running, as you said, as somebody who's on crime incompetence. He's tough on crime. He wants to make sure that uh, police are held accountable, but he's also wants to do something to reduce uh, what is a significant crime rate uh, in Chicago that's really... Uh, put people on edge. Um, he wants accountability for those police as well. But he's also the only guy that has run the education system in Chicago and made it work in a positive way. Test scores were going up when he was the head of the school uh, system. Um, you know, when nobody else could negotiate between the police and the city, he came in and negotiated an agreement. Between- All right, we're we're going to get an illegal in kind here in a minute, but th- th- that is a good pitch and it's working for him. I see those polls too. What are the others saying? There are other folks that haven't started spending money yet. So we'll see what happens uh, when they do. Um, and then you get a runoff. And, you know, obviously, big question is, does, does Lightfoot make that runoff? Or is it uh, two fresh candidates? Um, it it it's, seems inconceivable, but it is possible that uh, the incumbent mayor may not make the runoff. Is that what you guys want? Do you have a favorite theory or would you rather have Chewy in the runoff? 
I'm not going to get into to that level of. <laughs> I'll bet you don't want two fresh candidates. I'll bet you want to be changed. That's my prediction. So you want Lightfoot. The reality is, you know, Congressman Garcia is, is, uh, has identified himself as a pretty far left uh, member of Congress. The, the electorate in Chicago is solidly Democratic. It's solidly liberal, but it is not far left. Will Vallis in the runoff, should he make it, and I would bet he will, have a cap? He'll do great with white ethnics and all that. But will his cop uh, connections and everything else, you think, make it hard for him to get all the way? Or do you think from your polling the uh, the city's ready to kind of make that shift? Because the police there are controversial. That's the other side of the crime issue. People want somebody who's focused on the crime problem and seems to have some ideas for dealing with it. And, and Vallis is the only candidate who's really been focused on public safety. Got it. And being the only one is always a good thing in politics if it's you're only on the thing they care about. Well, and I think this is, you know, to your point, both of you are making is, you know, the 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 real interesting question is going to be whether whether Lightfoot makes this runoff because it is a markedly different runoff race running against that incumbent versus, um, you know, two people that that can scramble, um, you know, sort of how how you're going to watch all these different ethnic groups break in voting. Uh, but also, you know, you're, you're not, a, you're not running against that, the sort of status quo you're, you're running against somebody else who's got different ideas. So I, I think this one is going to be fascinating in terms of watching that kind of big city dynamic, uh, crime is, is, and has been on the tops of people's list for a really long time in Chicago. And it will be interesting to see, uh, uh, where this ends up. And quite frankly, when do people start taking shots at, at Vallis in, leading up to that runoff uh, in order to try to change their calculus a bit. Yeah, I love what's fascinating is, you know, Lori Lightfoot was a prosecutor, ran as the tough on crime candidate right? Uh, uh, the first time around. She's walked away from that completely because she's failed to make any dent in the problem. Yeah. You know, I, I don't like her new spot, which looks really defensive to me. It's somebody walking and talking, talking about, well, she's going to get on it soon. We're working on it. Not easy to fix crime. Uh, I thought that was a win for you guys. I like your spot with your candidate standing out in the snow being against crime. Who did that? Whose spot? Joe Trippy. Oh, Trippy. Yeah, good, good. All right. Well, we will we will keep an eye on that. Chicago is a former resident, and me is a – I think I voted over 100 times now in Chicago. I, I can't really track it. I just like to tease Axelrod about that. The EA is going to be after your tush there very quickly. <laughs> Others have tried. Many have tried. No, it's, I'm, I don't want to vote there. I just, I think I'm on the rolls. I'm just assuming. It's a, it, as Foghorn Leghorn would say, actually, as Kenny Delmar, the radio comic, they stole Foghorn Leghorn from, would say, it's a joke, son. All right, quickly, Democrat majority for Israel. Give us the 90-second pitch on what you're up to there. A little bit controversial. I think you're doing the Lord's work. Well, DMFI is really about making sure the Democratic Party remains pro-Israel. You got a pro-Israel Democratic president, pro-Israel vice president, pro-Israel speaker, or Democratic leader in the House, majority leader in the Senate, uh, all strong pro-Israel. We want to keep it that way. Uh, and uh, we've intervened in some primaries to keep it that way. We've intervened in general elections to make sure the pro-Israel champions win. Uh, and we're working with the party to make sure that the party platform remains pro-Israel. So all that and more. Uh, but that's the objective of the organization, to make sure the Democratic Party continues its long, proud tradition of being a pro-Israel party. Working with friend of the pod, Brian Goldsmith, on that. Doing great work in a bunch of IEs that I've been watching. You know what time it is, Murphy. 
I do. Cue the orchestra. It's listener mailbag. We got our own little jingles. Good stuff. We're going from 1958. <laughs> yeah, we're spinning the hot wax here, Mark. This is uh, what we do. All right. If you have a question and submit your Biden age joke to diffuse it, if we get some good ones, we'll read yeah. them on the air. You just send them to the comedy corner here at Hacks on Tap. Our address is hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever. That helps their algorithm know we exist and spray us out to other unsuspecting future listeners. Okay, let's go to the questions. Our first question is for the great Mark Melman. It is from Arthur. Arthur wants to know, do you see any path to a reputable career in Congress for George, if that's his real name, Santos, is he at this point capable of working with either party to get stuff done? In two years, George Santos is more likely to be in prison than in Congress. <laughs> the reality is he is perpetrating a fraud on the people of New York. The only reason he's sitting in the United States Congress is because he perpetrated a fraud. New York Republicans know that. They've called on him to resign. And the only reason he hasn't is because Kevin McCarthy needs him. He needed him to become speaker, and he needs him to uh, uh, to pass any of his legislation through the House. So he's not willing to give up on uh, on Santos, uh, even though Republicans in uh, in New York are. Um, this guy is just a complete fraud, uh, and he sh- if he had any decency, he'd resign. He obviously doesn't have any decency. He's proven that over the years, so he's not resigning. Uh, and McCarthy is not likely to push him out. But I think the real process uh, of the Justice Department and the Ethics Committee uh, will end up forcing him out of the Congress. So uh, he won't have time to really work with anyone else to get anything done. Yeah, I agree. He'll be the member from cell block C, but lying is not a reason you can't serve or get elected in Congress. It's the financial fraud that'll get him. And send your angry letters to Gibbs, but in a three-vote House, uh, if he were a Dem, they'd keep him too, I think. I quibble with that. I don't think that that's necessarily true. Uh, I will say some listeners will, will, as you're hearing this, you'll know Santos went to McCarthy yesterday. I think this is, to Mark's point, is trying to take the heat down from McCarthy so that he can keep him for as long as he can uh, and has stepped away from recusing himself from committees, which to me is also the beginning of the end of the George Santos congressional career. Because if you can't actually be a congressman, I think this is going to snowball pretty quickly into him being a former congressman. Yeah, he'll have a job waiting at the Lincoln Project, which Frank kind of answers your question. Ouch. But uh, yeah, All right, hey, I'm going to uh, hey. segue away from that sort of quickly. Uh, goodness gracious, shots fired here on the podcast. I got a question for you, Murphy. This yeah. is from Jonathan, who says, I lived in California for many years. California gave us Nixon and Reagan. In my time living there, California had two Republican governors. Uh, after, they, uh, after that heyday, the California GOP seemed to move out of the mainstream. Is what happened to the California Republicans a, pre- a predictive for what's happening to the American GOP? Well, Jonathan, you make a good point. And don't forget Arnold Schwarzenegger, the last Republican governor of California. It is California is a spe- oh yes, exactly. Um, the how do I put this? It is a combination of things. And while it is generally true, whatever happens in American popular culture tends to happen first in California and move out. 
So there's a little truth to your supposition that is it a, a harbinger of the future. But California is special because it's a state that's had rapid demographic change. And in the Wilson years, my old friend Governor Wilson, tough Marine, great governor, but he played the immigration card so heavy in a state with an exploding Latino population that uh, uh, it did some damage over time. Uh, so the state has become, uh, through kind of demographic evolution, pretty hardcore blue. We don't even carry Orange County anymore. So uh, it's just not your former California anymore. And while if, if we ever get around to modernizing the Republican Party with a modern conservatism, uh, it could rotate back and be in hunt. But it's a classic story of the, the party shrinking itself, and that means the internal politics become more strident about life inside the shrinking number of people. So right now, if you're Republican California, run for mayor of Fresno, you have an excellent chance couple of congressional districts, and, and that's about it, uh, which is, you know, a, a huge tragedy in the history of the Republican Party. But the state changed, and we changed in the wrong direction. Finally, I'll just say we have the first-past-the-post system here in California. So it is possible, as the party shrinks, it'll become an important swing vote to pick a Democrat, which could reorder, like in the—it is likely, though, Diane right. Feinstein hasn't admitted it, uh, that you know, she, we're waiting on the announcement, but she's not running again, most likely. And so we've got a bunch of uh, people looking at the race. Two are in, Congressman Schiff and uh, Congressman Porter. Uh, and if they wind up in a runoff together, which is a, could definitely happen, it'll be the, the Republican vote in all its different flavors here that could, uh, that could swing the race. So the right flank could become more important to Democrats as they become a choosing vote but no longer a winning vote. All right, Robert, we're going to ask you the blockbuster here to close it out. All right. This Uh-oh. is, in fact, the White House has just stopped operating as everybody is going to their, their, their favorite podcasting platform to listen to you. Then some wisdom here. Matilda, fantastic name, wants to know what are the responsibilities of the chief of staff to the president? And what advice do you have for Biden's new chief of staff, with Ron Klain now having uh, retired after, a, uh, uh, I think, a, a pretty strong performance for two years? Yeah, Ron steps away the day after the State of the Union on February the 8th. And, and you're absolutely right. Ron's been a remarkable chief of staff uh, inside and outside of that building. He's helped shape the communication strategy. He's very prolific on Twitter, getting reporters to notice things he wants to them to notice. He's got a long history with Joe Biden, too. And so I think that's played a remarkably important role in getting a lot of stuff done during the two years in which legislating was a possibility. Look, each president decides based on the personalities and the time what they need the chief of staff to do. But essentially, you're the as the 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 uh, the job title says, you're, you're the head of every all the staff inside of the White House. You obviously have a decent number of duties that go along with it in terms of national security. But it's your job to make sure that that building runs well and runs well for that president. And I think Jeff Zients coming in as the new chief of staff is going to be a very different role than the one Ron had. Uh, Each chief of staff, again, has a different set of skills and a different set of personalities and inherits it at a different time. I think where Ron did a lot of the things around legislating and communicating, I think you're going to see Jeff as the White House gets ready to run for reelection 
he, Jeff's a management and uh, he's a management guru. He's he's he knows how to make the trains run on time. You saw that with the the COVID response, and I think he's going to get everybody in their lane to make sure that the White House and the bureaucracy of the federal government, which the president can use politically. Um, uh, to to do things that he can't do legislatively, to get everybody kind of in their lanes uh, and to get moving in a forward direction, to get everybody coordinated. Um, I, I don't think Jeff is going to try to be Ron Klain. Uh, I think that would be uh, a bit of a disaster because, again, Ron had a long relationship with him. I think the biggest challenge that the White House is going to have is losing that relationship with Klain is, you know, somebody's got to go in and tell the president, that that's not a good idea. They can't do that. Uh, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge in this new White House, though he's still surrounded by a lot of people that have been with him for a very long period of time. So I think Jeff is going to make the trains run on time, make the policy process run on time, make the economic team run on time, make the communications team run on time, and make sure everybody is doing what they need to do to move the ball forward over the course of the next two years. I would agree. I'd say also the secret part of the job is you have to protect the president from the president. And Joe Biden's a senator, which means he's a cat, not a dog, likes to get into a lot of different things. I'm always reminded of the great story about General Marshall. Right after World War II, Europe was starving after being liberated. The communists were on the march, starving people like that pitch. He took the brightest folks in the State Department, many in their 20s, put them in a room and said, save Europe. You have two weeks to figure out a plan. And if I were you, I'd avoid trivia. I'd make sure the president is focused on presidential things. And take more polls, right, Melvin? I was leaving you wide open to tack on (laughs) weekly tracking polls. Turn on your radar, Joe. Weekly, daily, daily. Uh, (laughs) In Spanish and English. All right, Mark Melvin, thank you so much. What's your Twitter handle if people want to keep wise? I know you have a column in The Hill, which I highly recommend. I frequently tweet. My Twitter handle, I believe, is the very creative at Mark Melvin. All right, good. Catchy. Mark, thank you. I know you probably thought you were joining a political podcast, but in fact, this is an old cultural podcast where Murphy tells us who stole Foghorn Leghorn and bands from the 50s. But occasionally we actually talk about polling, too. Yeah, we're the next week small engine repair. We cover the waterfront here. I always enjoy it. All right. Thank you, pal. Gibbsy, thank you. See you next time. <laughs>